Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Lynn Kaiser is an inventor, serial entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He has an explicit focus on the advancement of exponentially growing technologies that address humanity's grand global challenges. In 2017, he founded Hyperorganic Technologies with the intention to revolutionize manufacturing. Lynn Kaiser, welcome to our program. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to to contribute to our high level consultations on how to restart and jumpstart the economy uh, post COVID nineteen without avoiding the faults and uh, the regression that were caused uh, after the two thousand eight financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, uh, I'm referring to particularly uh, within the, this context to the trickle-down system uh, that uh, was, that didn't work, was actually meant to help startup companies and so on and uh, create more jobs, but it didn't work because we were putting more money into an already faulty system, which is exactly what we're currently doing. So the purpose of this videocast is to, entice your opinion and that of many others, high-level thinkers, on how to avoid the fault lines of the financial system and to move and create a, a better better world going for, forward within the context of the grand global challenges that we're also facing, like climate change and unsafe AI and so on. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Mariana, for having me uh, this morning. And uh, yes, of course, these uh, these things are very much on my mind. Um, I think uh, one of the issues that we always face when we run into a crisis like that, and then when we discuss uh, what will happen afterwards, is that we can fall into the trap that we are trying to preserve what was already there. And uh, well, I mean, there's lots of great things that are there. And um, I think in, in Germany here in particular, we are in a much better position to deal with, with some of the fallout um, that, um, that always comes with these crises uh, than many other countries. But still, um, the system and uh, the, the issues that we had before uh, had lots of challenges, and um, you know, one of the things that um, that I'm always worried about is that there's such a huge focus on very large signature companies um, that receive you know, billion-dollar uh, bailouts in Europe, uh, billion-euro bailouts, and people forget that most of the economy is actually uh, smaller companies and medium-sized companies that uh, you know, employ the bulk of people that provide. Uh, most of the um, most of the the, uh, the tax uh, revenue and obviously it's, uh, contribute to the you know the most of the economy. Uh, another area that I'm worried about is of course the area of startups. So I've been doing startups for 25 years now, and you know startups is where most of the innovation comes from, and um, I think we still are 
only starting to understand that, uh, particularly in Europe, in the United States, and also particularly in China, um, people are further along, I believe. And um, you know, if you focus too much on the large companies, and maybe you focus also a bit on the established companies, even if they are smaller, you you tend to forget uh, the startups, and the startups are the future. And what we actually have to do is make sure that the good ideas, not every startup is a good idea, uh, but that the good ideas in these startups stay here in Europe and are uh, thriving because they are the only ones that can actually uh, really, really drive uh, the innovation forward. And so this is one of my worries. You know, there's lots of worries that you can have in the crisis like that, but, you know, this is an opportunity for a new beginning in many ways, but it is unfortunately also an opportunity to fall into the trap of trying to, to conserve and, and uh, you know, reinforce the old structures. And this is really what we have to deal with and uh, you know, address very smartly. A good, there are good tendencies right now to do this, but uh, we have to be very careful. I couldn't agree more. The numbers show that between 60 to 80% of every GDP in every country around the world comes from small, small and medium enterprises. So that's a given. Yeah. So what are the fault lines of the current financial system that didn't work within this context? And how would you recommend addressing those? What would you, as, as an entrepreneur, as a job creator, would wish to receive? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think there is a... I'm, I'm not a financial guy, so I won't comment on the financial system in general, but I can, I can look at a couple of... Um, a couple of um, symptoms that I believe are showcasing that there is something wrong. I mean, first of all, um, Germany has 1 trillion euros on private bank accounts without interest right now. Why is that money not invested somewhere? You know, so, I mean, this is, this is particularly Germany, and it's slightly different in other countries. It's totally different in, um, in, uh, on other continents like the United States. But um, this money actually needs to go into the future of our country and not sit around you know, losing value. So this is just one observation. So this is very interesting. You know, in particularly Germans, but you know, I think it's very similar in the rest of Europe, you know, have invested mostly in real estate and uh, uh, or nothing at all, like uh, the sun says. And we should get this money somehow into the hands of the people who are building the future. So this is one observation. Then there is another observation. It used to be that banks play a significant role in the financing of future enterprises. And for, because you know, basically that, that was a result of the financial crisis, but it started much, much earlier um, because people um, started to put all these rules in place, which were all well meant, um, uh, uh, like the Basel uh, agreements. Banks are basically completely out of investing in anything that has a risk. And, Unfortunately, the future, you know, future enterprises always have a risk attached to them. So, so banks don't play a role 
none whatsoever anymore in the financing of startups or even anything that is perceived as risky, you know, the small to medium enterprise is going to do it. Unless you have significant collateral, which basically nobody has, you know, that embarks on anything that's, that has meaningful risk attached to it, a bank is completely out of the picture. And this makes it very, very tough to find alternative sources to, um, to financing. Um, and then thirdly, I would say, you know, we still have a huge amount of catch-up to play in terms of venture investment, particularly in Europe. But also if I step back, and I don't want to talk only about Europe here, if you look at venture investments from uh, venture capital firms, uh, a venture capital firm is a financial instrument. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. A bank is also a financial instrument. So, so you know, there is, there is obviously a role for a purely financial um, a business model in the financing of the future of our world. But um, there is, of course, a lot of, there are, you know, there are many ideas out there that have a transformative impact, that could have a transformative impact on humanity, but they are basically not financed. I mean, yesterday we um, were almost watching the, the first launch of a, uh, a, a privately financed rocket uh, to bring astronauts into space. And if you look at the history of SpaceX, and if you also look at the history of Tesla, you will find that you know, for most of their time, they were really, really struggling to finance their enterprises. Now, if you look at the upside of you know, these enterprises succeeding, you can't, can't think that, you can't help but, but, but wonder why these companies actually have so much trouble getting financing and why there's so much nonsense out there that actually gets significant financing. And so there is, there is definitely something amiss. And I, I don't have like a magic formula how you can address that, but I definitely would wish that people take more what currently is perceived as risk. But frankly, the risk of doing nothing is much higher than investing in something that has these risks attached. So I, I, I agree that we have to be very careful selecting the companies and the individuals that push the boundary. But um, if people have trouble investing in somebody like Elon Musk, who has a track record and if you look at it really really carefully he has a track record i mean he's basically basically never giving up i mean who then has an actual chance of of getting anything off the ground that is that has the potential to be transformative but it's a long shot yeah thank you i uh, i couldn't agree more with you so de-risking would be a better de-risking would probably be a good way to uh, to support that uh, movement in that direction, which is, of course, what you know my expertise is, mm -hmm. and uh, the financial bottom line shows that it pays off. And yeah. also, in addition to the mind mind shift and uh, increasing trust yeah. in, in people and in um, in in building communities and uh, individuals and so on, so. Yeah, I, I, you know, one of the, 
Now, I'm, I'm always a little bit puzzled how people perceive risk. So, um, for example, people think that uh, investing in real estate is not very risky. So, uh, and, and to a certain extent, that is true if the economic system around that piece of real estate is stable and you know, everything is going well. But the problem is with your investment in real estate, you're not contributing to the well-being of the economic climate. So you're completely dependent on others. You're dependent on the startups, you know, doing the right thing, you know, uh, building the future. You're uh, uh, dependent on the established companies making smart decisions for the future, etc. Because if that doesn't happen, your piece of real estate is worthless. I mean, if you want a, a case in point, it's changing slightly. But, you know, if you want to go to Detroit, there are... Uh, there are uh, wonderful uh, uh, villas, you know, with swimming pools, etc., that are occupied by homeless people. Why? Well, it was a wonderful piece of real estate. There's absolutely no question about it. Uh, it used to be a, a great uh, investment at some point, but unfortunately, the economic climate around that piece of real estate changed. So. I'm really puzzled that people think that it's a great idea to invest into something that's completely de dependent on um, the uh, economic system without contributing anything to the future of the economic system. So um, this is a mindset problem, but it also is a communications problem. So if we communicated more clearly that um, investment in the future is the only thing that we can bring about the future, maybe some more people would invest in it. The other thing is, of course, you know, why not create more um, incentives for people to actually put their money into what currently is called risk, you know, high risk, you know, venture capital kind of things. You know, it's, it's still, I mean, um, an angel investment in uh, Europe, um, in, in most of the countries in Europe, you have to do from your from the money that you already paid a lot of taxes on, and there's very little ways to actually recoup you know any of the risk you know, that that you're putting in. So a lot of people don't do it. They say, "Oh my God, you know, it's my hard-earned money. I paid a lot of taxes on it. You know, now I should risk it on something that may actually um, amount to nothing." So they are not doing it. And if we if we I mean, imagine if you could just deduct. A venture investment from your taxes. A lot, of, a lot more people would do it. You know, my uncle in the 1970s started the first private space company, and he crowdfunded it. He crowdfunded it through angel investments. He had he raised 200 million Deutschmarks from small scale investors. And you can you could say, oh my God, this guy was a genius. But you know, there was a he was a genius, but. There was one really smart thing in the, and maybe it was a little bit exaggerated, in the, in the tax laws. You could more than uh, one, and you, I think two times the amount of the money you put into a high-risk enterprise, you could deduct from your taxes. So a lot of people just did this because of tax reasons. So you can see that this, this stuff clearly works. And I mean, investing in a private rocket company in the 1970s, Sounds like complete madness in terms of the risk that you're taking. But some of these things actually work. And we saw it yesterday with SpaceX. So we need more of that because innovation, quite frankly, is not happening fast enough right now to cope with these global challenges that we have. We are not on track to solving climate change. We're not on track 
on solving uh, you know, any of the goals of the sustainability goals from the United Nations because there's not enough innovation currently. And by the way, one, one thing that I want to mention because uh, you know, a lot of people think that uh, these challenges can be solved by scaling back our lifestyle, et cetera. So, and you know, I, we all know that some people are living excessive lifestyles and uh, we probably all have to be a little bit smarter about how we deal with long distance travel and things like that. But the COVID crisis showed very clearly Yes, scaling back has an impact, but scaling back doesn't have the impact that we need in order to solve, for example, climate change. Yeah, there are reductions, but we are not at zero. So, I mean, if by shutting down the entire world, we cannot even get close to the goals that we need to get to, there needs to be another solution. And the other solution is very clearly innovation and technology. So let's go there. You are an expert in... Uh, applied artificial intelligence. And so tell us a little bit about your view on exponential technology we, and how you see artificial intelligence, other exponentially growing technologies solving some of these problems or addressing some of these problems. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a software guy. So I started coding, coding 40 years ago, which is really a long time ago. But you know, I had a I had a first class view into the evolution of PC technology and uh, you know anything that had to do with software, and so I'm used to exponential developments. You know, software and computers you know exponentially uh, became faster and and more capable, etc. And uh, you know, today's computers and today's digital devices have very little to do with the computers that I started coding on you know 40 years ago. And so I was always frustrated that progress on other things is incredibly slow. If you, if you take a modern car and you strip away all the plastic decoration, it looks like a car from the 60s, frankly. I mean, sorry to all the car guys out there. And there is no fundamental transformation. Now, if you strip down a Tesla, it looks slightly different. And we are finally starting to see uh, some of the innovation that's necessary. But why is it so complex and why is it so hard to evolve physical things. And the answer is relatively easy. It's because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of manual work. It's, it's a lot, I mean, digital stuff. I mean, you know, once, once uh, you know, the computer works, you know, it works perfectly and you, you don't have to deal with production challenges and stuff like that. So this is part of it. But um, the main thing that I think is holding us back is because we still essentially create and engineer products like Leonardo da Vinci did. You know, so Leonardo da Vinci imagined something amazing and he was clearly a genius and then he brought it down on parchment and drew it. And then now we can look at all these amazing machines that he did. Um, and that's basically how an engineer today designs something. You know? And even if the guy is a genius, it takes a lot of time to actually you know, go through the process and uh, then obviously it needs to be manufactured. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And then you have to re-engineer. And that you know, is why we have product cycles of years and not of days. And um, what we did five years ago, I started a company called Hyperganic, um, where we said, you know, why can't we move this thought process that the engineer does into a computer algorithm so that we can automatically engineer objects? Now, the engineer isn't superfluous. I mean, first of all, the engineer needs to constantly inform the system. But the role of the engineer is moving to a more abstract role. So 
uh, it's less about coming up with the perfect answer. It's more about asking a very, very precise question. And that's what we embarked on. And one of the key enabler for this new world is additive manufacturing, industrial 3D printing. Because industrial 3D printers are a little bit like what the PC meant for the software world. There was software before the PC, but the PC gave us a standardized device on, you know, in, in, in everywhere where we could basically run the same software and do stuff. And 3D printers give us a standardized way of fabrication. So we don't have to deal with every single machine and every single thing that, that, uh, that uh, we have to adapt to. So artificial intelligence helping us with the design and engineering of uh, parts, structures, but eventually entire machines and additive manufacturing, digital factories that produce in a standardized way anything that we feed it to are the key enablers for innovation on the hardware side. And I believe this is, this is a really, really key uh, enabler for solving these really tough challenges. There are many, many other fields, but this is the field that we chose because you know, artificial intelligence in software and finance and you know, uh, interpreting chest x-rays, et cetera, this is all great and there's huge potential there. But I think where we have to play the biggest catch up is the creation of physical objects, of machines. You know, machines are hard and slow to build, and we have to jumpstart that because a lot of the challenges that we are currently facing can only be solved through physical objects, not through better applications of services or, or, or you know, um, I don't know, financial software or better, better ways to plan your travel. Actually, it needs to be a physical machine that's better than what was there before. Yes, can you give us an example of what the impact, the global impact is from the idea of, of an object to the different 3D printed object using yeah. the technology? And you gave a great talk on TED uh, about this. So that would help our viewers and listeners to relate better to what you're saying, because I think it's very difficult for us humans to imagine, you know, we're unfortunately, we're not all, uh, you know, geniuses, but by giving such an example that will exemplify what you mean and what the impact is of this new way, it's actually a disruptive way of thinking and doing things where the end is, you know, less junk, less wasted time, less um, garbage produced. Yeah, actually, um, uh, there is there's many examples. So let me give you the example that we brought up uh, at TED, and this is two years ago. You know, we developed a rocket combustion chamber, um, so basically a rocket engine, um, by completely by algorithm. So um, it looks surprising, and maybe uh, Mariana, you can you can show some pictures, uh, uh, you know, in in your uh, in your video cast uh, that I can send you to. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, how do you design a rocket engine? You design a rocket engine by basically hiring a rocket engineer. And how does the, the person go to work? Well, he or she um, uh, creates um, something that they, that, that they have probably done before and maybe modifies it a little bit, and then you have an incrementally better rocket engine. And so what we did is instead we kind of dumped all the processes that an engineer would apply 
and into computer algorithms. And then we let the computer actually run iterations and test different things. And because the computer never tires and you can run, you know, run it on multiple computers at the same time, you know, you're, you're exploring a gigantic solution space. You know, it's much bigger than what you can actually imagine. I mean, a lot of the stuff actually, quite frankly, was complete nonsense, but it doesn't matter because um, nobody cares. You know, it's not your boss saying, you know, it's, it's clear that this doesn't work. You know, why, why did you even go there? The computer just experiments within the parameter sets that they have, and they come up with surprising results. And um, the interesting thing here is this can happen here on my computer, but this can happen also on other computers, and we can actually start a global collaboration. So a global co collaboration on the best algorithms, but also on computing times and maybe different inputs. And this is really the key enabler for the future of, of uh, engineering is that we allow people in locations all over the world to collaborate digitally on solving a really complex problem. Right now, if you work on a physical object, you probably do it in one place, physical place. And there are smart people all over the world that we all need to enable. Yeah? And a lot of these smart people live in also in regions that are not easily accessible with physical uh, supply chains, et cetera. So I think it's really, really important uh, to do that. Um, now, there's an interesting side effect that you have when you design objects completely digitally and produce them completely digitally. And that is that you don't have to physically ship things all of the time. If you think about also like in the COVID crisis, you know, how much trouble we had because supply chains were disrupted. Now, if we had localized manufacturing, and uh, you know there's a lot of discussion about bringing manufacturing back home, and it's usually for patriotic, nonsensical reasons, but there is actually an interesting aspect to it. You know, is, is it actually sustainable to always chase the cheapest labor and uh, you know, produce stuff in places very, very far away and then ship them in complicated supply chains you know, to other locations, assemble them, ship them again, that is not very efficient. I mean, we, we used to do that with music and, and, and videos and stuff like that, you know? Um, now we don't do that anymore. You know, if I want to listen to music, I, you know, switch on my cell phone and boom, there all of a sudden there's the song that I just listened to, you know, in the shop. I can, I can listen, it on, uh, listen to it on my way home. And um, what we propose is the establishment of what we call digital physical products. So we know what a digital product is. You know, a digital product is something like software or movie today, you know, or um, uh, music. You know, these are purely digital. You would, you know, these days never trade them in physical form. You know, we used to. Uh, we used to buy, you know, uh, DVDs with, uh, with software on it. We used to buy, you know, DVDs with, uh, with movies on it. We don't, we never do that anymore. Uh, because it never needs to be manufactured. Then we have physical objects. These are the objects around us, you know, and they are never digital. I mean, you know, maybe we ordered them, you know, on an online shop, but, you know, they were physically manufactured somewhere, uh, assembled and physically shipped. Now, a digital physical product is a product that exists in digital form for most of its um, uh, uh, life before sale, is traded digitally without any carbon emissions, without any container ships, uh, docking, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's manufactured locally close to the consumer. And so what I talked about in the engineering, you know, will enable these digital physical products. And one of the interesting aspects of digital physical products is 
because they are manufactured so late in the process, you can iterate much faster. So if you have feedback from the field that, you know, for example, an object is failing, you know, it's not a big retooling and complex supply chain thing. You, know, you can actually make an adjustment. And from now on, all of the products actually are produced in a better way. And I give you one example that we recently did. We created a bicycle helmet. Now, one of the interesting aspects of digital physical products is that they can be customized. So we started with a scan of the head of a triathlete. And I don't know if you uh, have to buy bicycle helmets. Uh, uh, you know, at, you know, I've never seen anybody who had a fitting bicycle helmet. Yeah? So it's great that you can actually customize these things. So we started with a head scan, and then we generated this helmet, and then it was produced locally on a digital printer. Now, one interesting aspect of what we did is we put um, information from crash statistics into the design of the helmets and modulated the structure so that you, know, you had uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, stability on the side, but at the top it was very open, et cetera. So don't want to go too much into detail, but the interesting thing about digital physical products is now if these crash statistics change or if I get feedback from maybe somebody who had been in, in an accident with that helmet, I can feed that information back into the production process and can automatically redesign this helmet that from now on, actually this new information is taken into account. And this is what I mean by creating exponential progress on innovation on physical products. You can now all of a sudden iterate much faster. Every object that you can create can include all the new information and new, the new um, manufacturing um, uh, uh, you know, innovation that you want to apply. And from now on, all this stuff happens on a much uh, in, a, in a much faster uh, scale. So this is really what is needed in order for us to get you know, traction on this path towards exponential uh, technology in, in physical products. Excellent. These are extremely complex uh, issues. As you said, it's uh, exponential, uh, exponential growing thinking and actually double exponential as far as I'm concerned. Oh, and, uh, and so how do we manage to change the mind, which is in, in the way of changing systems? in order to achieve these transformations. In other words, how can we, without COVID-19, how can we maybe use uh, the current crisis to support the transformational processes of our systems moving forward? Yeah, I'm a very optimistic person, but I think I've given up on one thing. You know, it's, it's, it's changing people's minds you know, fundamentally. I think what you need to do is you need to empower the changed minds that already exist and give them more impact. I mean, if you look at the debate about electric cars, for example, I mean, you, you've, you've seen, you know, the same curve that you always see. It's like a complete ridicule at the beginning, then skepticism, then, uh, you know, hostility, actually. Still not quite over. But now, finally, we are getting to, oh, yeah, sure, it's a good idea. You know? So you always have, you always have this, this really weird curve in the human mind that people, when they see something new, a lot of people, when they see something new, 
And so ah, I don't need this. This is ridiculous. You know, it was 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 the, was good the way it was before. And just if we look at the world, no, it wasn't good before. You know, maybe we got used to it. But you know, one of the things that I found amazing, you know, during the COVID crisis, you know, the only thing I, you were allowed to do outside was doing sports. You now, so I, I was running a lot. I mean, I, I'm a runner, so I usually run a lot, but I ran even more. And now that we the lockdowns are uh, are closing, uh, you know, are ending, I notice how bad the air is. I mean, the air in Germany is not particularly bad, you know, compared to you know other places like Delhi or something like that. Um, but it is actually quite bad, you know, if you if you if you see the difference between you know fresh air and um, the air that's polluted by all the people running with gasoline cars, and so. It is clear that you have to change it. And my fear is always that people, uh, for whatever reason, they don't want change. They don't want change, even though the change is necessary for us to survive as, as humanity. Our children will not have a nice world. Um, I mean, it's already clear that even us, you know, um, are entering a world um, where a lot of things we took for granted uh, it's just not going to happen. I mean, people, people, uh, I mean, that we have a nice climate here in Europe. It's not, we can take that for granted. We are probably headed for another super hot summer. Um, you know, with COVID, we saw, we can't take for granted that we just have freedom of, freedom of movement and freedom of sickness and all of these things. So um, why are people against change? And I don't know that. But what I do know is that there are a lot of people who can help us bring about important change and we have to empower those people one part is the media i mean i'm really shocked you know how negative the media is this unfortunately was always the case you know it's not a new phenomenon you know if you read uh, you know uh, I, I read the biography of benjamin franklin and you know, if you look at the news uh, you know the, the the news he cites you know it's, it was like that in, in 1770 you know um, so it, it's not a new phenomenon but it is really strange that most, not all of our media is focusing on all the negative things and all the, on all the things um, that don't work. You know? um, so I hope that we can you know, get some positive vibes in there as well. Uh, but it is really a question of empowering the people who are already thinking along the lines. And now the question is, who does the empowering? And this brings us to politics. Yeah. And oh my God, you know how can we, how can we, I, I, you know, if I wish I had like you know this this pill we just give people and then magically they become better politicians. It's not that you know there's there's so many well-intended uh, politicians, but just like with the news, the negative ones tend to drown out the good intentions, the well-intentioned ones. And uh, maybe it's we have to get more people into politics. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, you can always complain about something, you know, this, I learned that as a startup guy, you know, if I complain about something that uh, should be changed, you know, why don't you build a company to change it? And boom, there it is. Right. So if you complain about, you know, some of our politicians, not all of them, I want to make this very clear. Well, why don't more people go into politics who think they have better answer and then put them to the test? I mean, a lot of people also complain about, uh, politicians and politics, and they don't actually have better answers. You know, it's also very easy to sit on the sidelines and be an armchair coach, 
Now, I, I have that as a startup entrepreneur all of the time. You know, there's people who say, yeah, no, no, this will never work. And they have no stake in it. And so they can, with, um, with one gesture, wipe out all your ideas um, if they're in the right position without actually uh, having to come up with a better idea. So this is one of the challenges that we have. So, um, you know, my wish is just that people would be more open especially people who don't have a stake in it. You know, when, I mean, I've seen a lot of private people vehemently argue against electric cars, for example, who are clearly a good idea. You know? And I also wondered why. I mean, because, I mean, they were not invested in traditional car companies. They were, it was not that their livelihoods were at stake. If, if somebody who has been building gasoline cars all their life, if they argue against it, I kind of understand it. it's a natural reaction. It's threatening your way of working and maybe you're super proud about what you've achieved and rightfully so. I mean, they've made a lot of incremental progress over the years. But if you're just somebody who owns a car or if you're just somebody who has no stake in these things, why are you arguing against something? I mean, it's, isn't it always better to have more choice? So... I would want people to be more open to that. And maybe if we can nudge them a little bit in that direction, that would be fantastic. But in the end, you know, um, you know, new rocketry came about because a guy was, uh, was uh, really uh, passionate about the subject and he just did it. And uh, many of the things that we take for granted, I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have smartphones. And then uh, came a company uh, headed by a guy who thought that was a good idea. And, you know, they did it. You know, so in the end, I mean, I think a lot of this needs to come from private individuals and private companies. And we need to find the funding and the, um, and the, uh, the framework to, to make them thrive. And I think there's a lot of good things that are currently being done on the EU level and, and also on the government level here in Germany uh, to help startups. I think it is not enough uh, if you think about the significance of uh, the technologies that we are all developing and uh, the impact that these are having um, on, on the future of humanity. The future of humanity is only going to be bright if we jumpstart innovation in, 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 in startups and, um, and in technology in general. And so this is, this is really my wish that we uh, keep this in mind all of the time, that we do very specific focus programs on making it easier for private individuals to help startups. You know, it's not, I mean, I, I don't think startups need, um, need a lot of money from the state. What we need is a framework that unleashes money that is currently tied up in, in really stupid um, other investments. You know, and the worst investment is a bank account that doesn't give you interest. So you're losing one and a half, two percent every year of the hard-earned money that you made. And uh, if we can invest that in, in future technology, hallelujah, you know, a, a trillion. I mean, if you imagine if we just invested 20% of that trillion that is sitting on bank accounts right now into a startup technology. And the good thing about this angel money, you know, the money from private individuals is they are doing the due diligence. I mean, it's their hard-earned money. So they will not just throw it away. They will look very carefully at the people involved on the startup side, and they will look very carefully on the ideas involved. So it's, it's actually a pretty safe way of 
unleashing investment. But I think it's it's one of the most untapped sources that we have in Europe, and I'm pretty sure it's very similar in, in other countries in the world. So I, I think you know that if, if we can do one thing, make it tax deductible to make an investment in a startup, you know, or make it even more than tax deductible. So give you a give them a little reward because they are taking a risk to lose all their money. So um, let's give them something from the state that they actually get in return. And it is a great, and, and, and basically that's a co-investment. You know, the state is doing a co-investment here. And it's a very smart co-investment because, you know, private individuals are very careful about selecting where they pour their money. So that is, for me, one of the most important instruments that we can actually take to uh, unleash these uh, exponential technologies and the, the innovation that's, that's coming from startups. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and ideas. And uh, let's um, work toward that outcome, which is why we're doing this program. And uh, thank you so much. And good luck to you with your fundraising. Yeah, thank you, Mariana. You know, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for doing this, because this is one of the ways you can actually uh, get these thoughts into the minds of people. You know, in the end, it's about spreading ideas in uh, in uh, in people's minds. Now, there's nothing more important than an idea whose uh, time has come. And the, the, the author of this quote actually evades me, but I, I love this quote. So thank you, Mariana. And, um, you know, I hope we see more of these kinds of investments and, um, and uh, startups uh, tackling these challenges. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.